You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode 11. The parables of Jesus are a repository of metaphor, simile, humor, and surrealist imagery. A camel fitting through the eye of a needle or a scorpion offered in place of an egg. Jesus' imagery is sometimes graphic, even violent, a man cutting off his limbs or gouging out his eye to avoid sin. But for those who have grown accustomed to traditional interpretations of these stories, the radical nature of Jesus' words can be lost within our familiar cultural understandings. For the artist working in a context of faith, recovering a sense of the revolutionary attributes of Jesus' parables opens a whole new dimension of artistic exploration. I recently spoke with Vanderbilt professor of New Testament and Jewish studies, A.J. Levine, on how we interpret Jesus' parables and why having a clear contextual understanding is important both spiritually and creatively. A.J. Levine has authored multiple books, including The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, The Bible with and Without Jesus, How Jews and Christians Read the Same Stories Differently, and the book this episode centers on, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. A.J. describes herself as an unorthodox member of an orthodox synagogue, and a Yankee Jewish feminist who teaches New Testament in a Christian divinity school in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So hang on to your seats and welcome to the first Makers and Mystics episode of 2021. I'm excited to share this conversation with you on parables and the surplus of meaning with A.J. Levine. AJ, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's truly an honor to have you on the show today. That's really sweet of you. Thank you. (laughs) Happy to be here. (laughs) Good. You know, I first heard of your work and and heard you speak on one of my favorite podcasts, uh, The Bible for Normal People. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Peter Renz is a good friend. I really, really like what he does. I do too. I've learned a lot from that podcast and I was grateful to them because that's how I was introduced to your work. And the first book of yours that I read, which is one that I hope to talk about some today as well, is Short Stories by Jesus. I had lots of fun writing them, I have to admit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. It, it's wonderful. But for our community and for me as an artist and as a musician, your understanding of the parables and, and your take on how to interpret some of the, the short stories of Jesus has just been life-changing for me. So I'm, I'm looking forward oh, to talking super. about it. Thank you. I mean, they're, they're actually life-changing for me, and I'm not even Christian, but I, I find mm-hmm. Jesus a remarkable teacher. What would you say one of your favorite things about the teachings of Jesus would be then? He doesn't so much tell us something new. Um, is he tells us what we've already known, but we've got buried so deep down, we've repressed it. And like this really good surgeon with a scalpel, he comes in and just kind of uncovers our hearts and says, here, pay attention to this. You need this, even though it might hurt a little bit. And what makes him even more interesting is he has a wonderful way of indicting us. And at the same time, he makes us laugh. 
So he engages in surgery, but he also gives us some painkillers to help us get through. Um, And he's there by the bedside saying, I'm going to be with you during the recovery. You can do this. You can be a better you than you are right now. I love that. Even bringing in the element of humor and the element of comfort and the element of laughter in the midst of surgery. Well, there's there's often a little bit of pain in the process of, of trying to figure out how can you do what it is that you do better than you're doing it now. And there's also a sense of pain when you're told you're not doing as much as you should be doing. So our normal response is to be defensive. Yes, I am. Or you're not doing as much as I am, as opposed to saying, yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think I can do more. One thing that I am curious about, you you talk about in your book about how we domesticate Jesus's stories. Tell me what you mean by that. How have we domesticated Jesus's stories? We, we meaning the general public and certainly for people in the church, Jesus' parables are looked at as children's stories because most kids get them when they're in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Um, so they think of them as children's stories, and they're they're either banal or they're boring. Like, you know, the Good Samaritan means you stop and help somebody by the side of the road. Um, or the Prodigal Son means God loves you even if you mess up really relatively big time. And those are fine messages, but that's not all the parables are doing. To make those points, Jesus does not need to tell us a story, right? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is read the Psalms or, for that matter, look at the story of the Garden of Eden where people mess up big time, but God goes with them out of Eden. So instead of looking at the parables as children's stories and taming them and taking away the challenge, which is domestication, um, why not let them be there in all their wildness in how interesting they are and use them for not only teachings about theology, you know, how much God loves us, which is fine, but also teachings about ethics, how much God wants us to do. You said in your book, I'm quoting you, reducing parables to a single meaning destroys their aesthetic as well as ethical potential. Tell me about how that destroys the aesthetic of the parable. Right. That seems like a good question for an artist to, to ask. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can have music on a sheet uh, and then tell somebody here, play this. But whoever's doing the playing is going to bring a particular tonality a particular sense of of how loud or how soft or how fast, or do I slow this up or do I milk this thing? So that when you hear Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star played by somebody who's just learning Suzuki violin, and then when you heard, heard it played by somebody who's a professional musician you really hear quite a different piece. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that uh, the Virgin Mary can be portrayed in art in in multiple ways, or the same piece of music can be recorded by symphonies and it will always sound different, so it is the case with a piece of literature that whoever reads that text brings to that text what that individual reader has experienced, what else that reader has read, how the reader is feeling that particular day. Um, And I think this works just when you talk to general people who go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. If if you read a text when you're six and then you read it again when you're 60 and you get exactly the same message out of it, the text has become boring Mm -hmm. or wrote and something has gone dreadfully wrong and it hasn't gone wrong with the text. Mm -hmm. It means that our reading sense is arrested. Oh, a couple of years ago, I was in a church. Um, Sometimes churches invite me to come in and do, sometimes I do like the sermon slot or I do an adult ed thing. Um, So I'm in the service, and it was one of those churches where there was a service at 9, and there was a service again at 11. Um, And there were were very, very good musicians playing. 
And when I'm there, they frequently throw in something that's kind of Jewish. So one of the tunes that was played at the earlier service was this tune called Anima Amensa, I believe. And I mentioned to the soloist, a violinist, in between the services, that that was one of the songs that Jews sung in the concentration camp wow. as they were going to their death. And, and she did not know that. And when she played it at the second service, it sounded completely different. I bet. And she admitted that. So the notes stayed the same, but the musician had changed. Mm-hmm. The parables, the words stay the same, but how we read them will necessarily change depending upon what else we know and what else we bring to our readings. Mm-hmm. You said in your book that the surplus of meaning is how poetry and storytelling work. Yeah. So a a text, as soon as somebody says a word, writes a poem, paints a painting, plays a piece of music, then you have people out there who are going to assess it. Uh, The the professional ones are called critics. Um, (laughs) The ones who like you anyway are called members of your family. Um, (laughs) So the text of whatever type of text this is, is going to be understood differently, read differently, heard differently, and different people will see different things in it. So I mentioned this to my students a number of years ago, and this is also the the problem of the intent of the author or the intent of the musician. You know, I wanted my song to sound this way. I wanted people to see that in my paintings. I wanted people to get this particular message out of my text. But that can't be controlled, particularly if the author of the text lived 2,000 years ago, because that author's culture and context would be quite different than ours. So I said to my students, first of all, we don't know the authorial intent. We can guess. But Jesus spoke in Aramaic, the New Testament's being written in Greek. Jesus probably spoke parables on multiple times to multiple different audiences. So the gospel writers have to figure out where to put them into the text and what audience to give. Plus, they're translating into Greek. And then we're reading it in English. So I gave my students, a, a, I made up a biblical passage. I made up a healing narrative. It's very easy to do because nobody ever gets names. So you, you do a, here are the symptoms. Here's how the person contacts Jesus. Here's what Jesus does to do the healing. And here's how the crowd responds. Standard. And I knew what I wanted them to find. And they came up with all sorts of stuff that I hadn't considered. And I said, well, no, that's wrong, because that was not part of the authorial intent. And they said, but it's in the text. Mm-hmm. So the text is always going to take on new meaning. And for Christians, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to explain what this text means in your own context, so that the Sunday morning sermon should be, what is the good news that this congregation needs to hear today? And the good news that Church A needs to hear may be very different than the good news that Church B needs to hear. Mm-hmm. And they'll still be talking about the same text. Right. You know, this, this makes me think one of the roles of the artist and of the storyteller is to present different perspectives, to show hidden or alternative considerations that maybe haven't been seen before. That's, that's one of the beauties of art making is to reveal the hidden or to show things we haven't considered before. But I think some of the tension between faith communities and the artist has been that oftentimes certain faith communities can be fearful or suspicious of other possibilities within the text, and it almost produces a passivity rather than an engagement with some of these parables. And I, and I love what you're saying, because the way I understand it is that there's a vibrancy, there's a living component to it that will always show us something different if we can kind of come to it with eyes of humility, in a sense. Oh, and eyes of creativity and eyes that are eager um, and, and experimental and curious. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's just boring. You know, you reduce the text to one particular meaning. Why bother to go to church? Everybody knows what it means. Stay home. 
you know, you can you can do the Times crossword puzzle and have a second cup of coffee. You don't need to walk <laughs> in. You don't need to go to church. Right. The Jewish tradition typically says, "Give me another interpretation. Give me another interpretation." Um, and we thrive on that, and that's what keeps the text alive after two thousand plus years. And what happened in the church is the church got so concerned about belief and having the correct creed and getting all that doctrine right that a lot of that sense of let's be able to read the text in multiple ways falls away. Jews can do this because at the end of the day, we're all still Jews because we're not just a faith community. We're a people Mm -hmm. like being Americans or being Italians. You know, once you're in the system, you're in the system, no matter how much you disagree. But you all agree that the same text is important, be it, you know, the Constitution or for Jews, uh, the, the Bible. So what I tell my Christian students is take your baptism a little bit more seriously. You know, it's not like you could look down, say, half the population go, oh, circumcised, you know, in the system. But baptism is indelible also. That doesn't wash away. So take it seriously. Most of the parables come without interpretation. The parable of the mustard seed or the parable of the leaven or the parable of the widow and the judge, right? Um, So they come generally without interpretation. And when they do, like when Luke comes in and says, oh, this means uh, the prodigal son means, uh, you know, God forgives you even if you screw up big time. Since most of the parables come without interpretation, it's likely that the gospel writers, good pastors that they are, (laughs) came in and said, well, here's what I think it means for, for the people reading my text today. But that shouldn't preclude other people from getting other messages. I mean, why should it? I think when Je- I think as an historian, I think when Jesus told parables, he did not provide answers to everybody. The Gospel of Mark tells us, I'm in Mark chapter 4 here, that Jesus told the crowds parables as best as they could re- receive them. And then he explained everything in private to his disciples. But if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are not the brightest students in the seminar. Um, it, when when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with limited resources and then another 4,000 people with similarly limited resources, and then he gets into the boat with the guys and says, beware of the leaven, you know, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. The disciples say to themselves, he's upset because we forgot to bring bread, which has to be one of the, the less informed <laughs> questions we have in the text. I mean, Jesus, he can cater. turn water into wine for goodness. I mean, he's not worried about that. Um, So they don't get the point of metaphor. They don't understand story. They consistently misunderstand him. And if all those interpretations are left in their hands, oh, heaven help us. So I think Jesus told parables in order to get people to talk with each other. So Andrew looks at Peter and says, what do you do with the yeast? And Mary Magdalene says, have you never made sourdough bread? Let's talk about it. So the parables become an opportunity for conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do in community. You don't shut down conversation. You engage it. Yes. Why are four gospels otherwise? Yeah, you can't tell the story the same way. Exactly. And that goes into the the different perspectives that we mentioned a few minutes ago. And just hearing you say this is really exciting to me because we've often talked about in our community how art presents more questions sometimes than answers. It's more provocative, again, to get us to engage. And you talked about in Short Stories by Jesus, again, the quality of listening. And you said it's uh, such listening is not only a challenge, it is also an art. And this art has become lost. And that really struck me because I do think that in our culture today, not just in faith communities, but at large, there's an art of listening that I I think would do us well to cultivate listening to hear echoes, 
listening to say, what does this text do for me? So instead of asking, what does a parable mean? Ask, what does it do? Does it challenge? Does it amuse? Does it indict? Does it remind me of something? And if so, what? Do I recall seeing it in a stained glass window? Do I recall its appropriation in other forms of art or literature? Because the parables themselves give rise to other stories. Um, How is the parable itself a story upon a story? So that when a parable begins, there was a man who had two sons, which is the beginning of the prodigal son. Don't skip, skip over that to get to, you know, what are the kids doing? Mm-hmm. Say to yourself, well, what other stories do I know about a man who had two sons? And that sends you back to Adam with Cain and Abel and Abraham with Isaac and Ishmael and Isaac with, with Jacob and Esau and so on. And say, so what do I expect now in the story since I've seen the plot line already several times? And how is this, how is this to use the musical term, a variation on a theme? I know a large part of your work has been dealing with some of the more abusive interpretations of the Bible and how some of the ways that the Bible has been interpreted throughout history has has caused a lot of damage. And I, I think that interests me because many artists feel at the peripheral or they feel uh, that there hasn't been a place in the midst of faith communities for their work or that perhaps their work has just been utilized to serve the church agenda rather than being given the freedom to express. And so your work of stripping away the layers of cultural add-ons to the parables of Jesus and to the stories of Jesus is something that really fascinates me as a leader in an art community. I wonder if you could speak into that a little more about how interpreting the scriptures apart from cultural lenses can help us have a purer understanding of of his parables. Yeah, thanks. I I think I need to rephrase the question because I'm not really interested in stripping out all all of those 2,000 years worth of interpretations. I mean, some of them are really quite fabulous. Um, And if I did, then there would only be one reading and that would be an historical reading. So what I'm actually interested in doing is providing a bit of layering um, to say, if you have a reading that makes sense to you, then you might, and it's not harming anybody because there are some abusive readings and hang on to it. If it works for you, that's terrific. Uh, But if you want to get a sense of what the parables might have sounded like in their original context, as Jews, Jesus is Jewish, his followers are Jewish, it's weird that you still have to mention that. So my friends said, no, wasn't he a Christian? Well, no. Um, uh, How how might they have heard it? Which is why they remembered these stories, because they're not all doing shorthand and they don't have tape recorders or iPhones. So why are they remembering these stories? Uh, what, What is striking to them? And then you get this sense of one more layer, which is even the layer behind the gospel writers to get past the the Greek text, to get back into that Aramaic, to get past the time that the gospel writers are toward the end of the first century, even the beginning of the second century, and back to the late 20s and early 30s of the common era to say, why, why are people paying attention to this in the first place? I think that's helpful. So even if you take, so here we would use art, right? So you can look at a piece of art and then you realize if an art restorer got a hold of this, I mean, something by Michelangelo or something by Raphael or or something by Caravaggio, and the art restorer comes in and says, oh, look, this was the original color. You know, and now it's too dark because it's got all this incense smoke on it for a couple of hundred years. Or we can see another layer here then you begin to appreciate the moves that the artist made. Oh, there was another figure over here, but the artist decided not to include it. Why not? 
um, that it just adds to the, the beauty of, of what you have. It adds to the knowledge of what the artist was attempting to do. Or even if you look at scores to say, how was this originally scored and what that changed over time, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. None of this was original. I mean, so I don't think we have an original version of a story. We don't start thinking about original versions um, until we have printing presses. Because even scribes, I mean, they're throwing in stuff right and left. I'd like to ask you, a lot of the work that you do is viewing the Bible as a work of literature. And I love this. When I look at it, I, I see the poems, you know, Song of Songs and the Psalms. And uh, many of the prophets were written in poetic form. And then, of course, we've been talking about the parables of Jesus. I see the Bible as a beautiful conglomerate of literature. How has that impacted your study of the scripture, seeing it as a work of literature? Yeah. Well, this is the old English major in me coming out. (laughs) It is a text. Texts require interpretation because otherwise they just sit there and and they don't do anything. So in order for a text to be alive, it needs to come into contact with a reader who does something with it other than just read it out loud in a robotic manner. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the law codes are a form of literature. So literature, it functions by genre. And if you know what the genre is, you have a better sense on how to interpret something. You know, a parable is not the same thing as a healing narrative, is not the same thing as a controversy story. Um, A story that talks about, um, oh, uh, snakes that walk upright and and chat with people. uh, That's not history. And we know that that's not history. It looks like a number of other texts that we have from the ancient Near East. We would call it myth not in the sense of false story or made-up story, Mm -hmm. uh, but a story that's designed to give us a sense of how the world got to be the way it is, uh, not necessarily how the world must be. Mm -hmm. Myths are things like, you know, any American can grow up to be president. Well, hmm, some people have a little bit more of advantage than others, Mm -hmm. um, or we are the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I'd like to think that, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't always cash out. So those are, those are other forms of myths. Um, if you understand the genre, you can better appreciate what the text is trying to do. And even for my fundamentalist friends who say, oh, no, it's not, it's, it's, you know, God dictated the entire thing. Okay. If you want to go with that, that's fine. My job is, is not, and my agenda is not to take away somebody's theological belief. But if you want to make that claim, then why use this word rather than that word? And why repeat this phrase rather than change it? And why have words that here seem to be more metaphor than they are literal? So, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to stumble, lop it off. (laughs) Uh, Why is that any less literal than when the Old Testament says, or the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible says, an eye for an eye, which which we never see carried out in the Bible, right? Nobody ever does this. Mm-hmm. So how do you interpret metaphor? How do you interpret hyperbole, exaggeration? When do you take something literally? Is it written with a humorous agenda or a sarcastic agenda or an angry agenda? Is it meant to comfort? Is it meant to indict or both? So with the parables, generically, as genre, parables are designed to challenge, to indict their ethical statements, their prompts. What frequently happens in Christian reception history is that the parables become comforting. So they're not challenging anymore. They're just telling us everything is going to be okay. It's all good. 
as opposed to here's what you need to do to make it better. And that's where genre helps. And that's part of what the study of literature helps us do is to try to figure out what texts are, are trying to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. I, I love you bringing up Jesus's metaphors and Jesus's use of metaphors. And we don't often talk about it in these terms, but many of the parables were fiction stories that Jesus made up. I often think, well, you know, there was a woman baking bread. Well, no, that's a story you made up, right? Or, or the, there was a, a man with two sons. Well, no, that's a fiction story. But I see Jesus as an artist. And of course, storytelling being one of the oldest forms of art and community building. I love seeing Jesus in the light of metaphor and simile and hyperbole and the things that that you're drawing out from his stories. Or just Jesus as storyteller, right? How much more human can you be? You tell a story. You, You know, even if something occurred to you the day before yesterday and you're recounting it to your friend, you're telling the story because you're choosing what words to use. You're choosing what inflection in your voice to give. Uh, if you're face-to-face or on Zoom, you're using hand motions. You're eliminating certain things that you don't think are relevant. Your friend might say, oh, well, you know, what was the weather like at the time? So what additional questions will add to that story. You may change that story over time as you get more information. So Jesus' parable, they're all fiction and they're all entirely true. You know, there was a man who had two sons and the kids didn't get along. Nothing new there. Right. right. So you read yourself into that story and you may read yourself in at one point. If you're, I'm an only child, so I I identify with the older brother because I was the good one who stayed home and and did everything right and took care care of my mom because my dad died when I was quite young. But you have two kids and, and the younger one goes off and has a great time and the older one's the responsible one who's taking care of elderly parents at this point. That, that is a true story. Mm-hmm. Or you read it and you're the parent and you realize you've paid such attention to the younger son, the one who was the, the free spirit, the one who went off and you know blew all his money and came home. Because he's the one who needed all that time. He's the kid who sucks all the air out of the room. And then the older child who did everything right and kept the peace in the family, who never got any attention because all that attention was paid on that younger child. And then you as the parent realize, oh my gosh. I've thrown this party for my younger son and I forgot to invite the older one. I didn't count. So you as the parent then become indicted. I favored this kid rather than that kid. I spent more time with the kid who was learning disabled than I did with the kid who was getting straight A's. Well, that kid who was getting straight A's, straight A's needed your love and attention just as much. Mm-hmm. Prodigal Son is a fictional story, but it's true across the globe. And sometimes storytelling enables us to engage truth in a way that prose doesn't allow, I think. Truth, maybe, or what's true for you, or reality, or your situation in life. I get really nervous with truth, capital T, uh, mm-hmm. because it tends to foreclose <laughs> conversation. Mm-hmm. It's it, When you look at the Bible, it's actually Pontius Pilate who asked Jesus, what is truth? And I'm not sure that's a really good question when, when <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life is standing right there in front of him and he can't tell. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't want to be in Pilate's shoes. But it, when you hear a piece of music or you see a painting or you read a text and somehow it just gets to you, then it's true for you and it's working on you. But it may not be true in the same way for somebody else. 
one thing I would love to ask you about, and this goes back to some of what I heard you speak about on the Bible for Normal People podcast. And one thing that you mentioned when you were talking to them, I think they asked you, what is the Protestant church? If you had one thing to say to them, what would you say to them? And in that interview, you said, I would, I would love to see the Protestant church learn how to argue better. Because, <laughs> and I love <laughs> I that. I still agree with that. That's a good answer. <laughs> you could have said anything after that and you would have had me because I just thought that was amazing. But you elaborated and you talked about how in the Jewish community, even our heretics are our heretics. But in the Protestant church, a lot of times if we disagree, we just go to the church down the street and never talk to that former community. Or actually, actually, you're even more creative than that. You just go found a new denomination. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, even earlier in our conversation today, we, we touched on the art of listening. And a few episodes back here on Makers and Mystics, I did an episode called On Belonging and Believing. And many times we have made, and I say we, the the Christian community in particular, has made believing a prerequisite for belonging. But in our community, we've been discussing flipping that narrative on its head and how belonging gives way to further conversation. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on community and on diversity within community and on celebrating the differences that we all bring to the table, even as you've been talking about the parables and how each person, even the different gospels, draw something different out of the same encounter. Can you talk to me some about that? You know, that sounds like a very Jewish way of doing church. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> we're in the system, because we're a people, as noted, so we can argue. Um, if you commit to being together, or to use the biblical term, you covenant, um, there are certain things that you will agree upon. And rather than pushing creedal statements by which you will agree, because most people, many people today who would recite something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, when they start to think about it, they're going, mm-hmm. do I actually believe that? You know, and then, and then it just becomes reciting words rather than actually paying attention to what you're saying. To say, what is it that binds us together? And if, it, if it's somehow a connection to Jesus, and belief in uh, people believe in Jesus in a variety of different ways, um, if it's a connection to Jesus, then what Jesus says is, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who hear the will of God and do it. Not those who believe and then list your 10 doctrines. Mm. Um, but even take more seriously that idea of mother and brother and sister. So you eliminate the father, you, you eliminate the, the top-down system, the patriarchal, because mm. you've only got one father who's God. And you can have more than one mother in the household because first century Judaism was polygynous. You could have more than one mom because you could have more than one wife. You have no husband and wives because husband and wives here, I mean, you might in your community or pe- part, people who are partnered off. But the idea is it, it, you're loyal to everybody there and not just the person in, with whom you've got a legal relationship, which means that everybody in that church is a mother or brother or sister. If somebody doesn't show up, you get on the phone or you call up on Zoom and you say, where are you? You weren't there. Um, if when we finally get back to community together at the end of the service, you make sure that everybody has a place to go rather than a half a dozen people go to the pancake house and other people have no place to have lunch. And you treat each other like you're members of a family. It's a functional family. And functional families can disagree because at the end of the day, they love each other. And that's what allows the disagreement. And they can, they can speak up rather than be afraid to say what they want to say. Because that's fear is not love. Love is being able to disagree and still hold that love together. 
Mm -hmm. That's what church should be. Certainly what synagogue is. Mm -hmm. If I don't disagree with my rabbi once every couple of weeks, one of us is not doing our job. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Very good. Very good. AJ, thank you so much for joining us today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm a huge fan of your work, so thank you. Absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much. Okay, friends, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with AJ Levine. I wanted to let you know that I have one final question that I asked AJ in our conversation, and this question I've reserved especially for our patrons. The question is, what advice would you give to artists who are interested in scripture as a resource of inspiration? And how can we go deeper in understanding the relationship between art and faith? If you're not currently a patron of the Makers and Mystics podcast, head over to patreon.com makersandmystics and sign up today for access to this additional question and other patron-only content, which I've curated especially for you. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics. Music for this episode is provided with permission by Celise. Tickets are now on sale for the Breath in the Clay 2021, both virtually and a limited number of live broadcast tickets. You can find those on makersandmystics.com as well as thebreathintheclay.com. We'll see you again next week, and until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.